Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! <laughs> Pack your bags and get ready. You're going to Vegas with people who know Vegas. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Vegas. Don't you miss the shows? Up until this year, Vegas played host to some of the greatest performers in the world in 2021. They should be heading back here. But in the meantime, A Look Back features a lot of singers, decade after decade, performing songs from what is known as the Great American Songbook. What is it? We all know the songs, but we know very little about the genre. That all changes today when you'll meet Ben Yagoda, author of The B-Side, The Death of Tim Pan Alley, and The Rebirth of the Great American Song. Part of our Vegas Ensemble is here with us as well, your Vegas insider Scott Robin and America's first master sommelier, Eddie Osterlin, will join us. And in the second half hour, Vegas Never Sleeps presents the Sports Rockin' Tours. Today's topic will be Jerry Tarkanian and the national champion UNLV Running Rebels, presented by Nevada sports writer Steve Karp, who was there when it happened. But up first, let's discuss music, the kind of music that excites generations of fans. Well, we've all heard of the Great American Songbook. It's something, if you listen to Sinatra music or anything like that, you've always heard it. It's the music of Gershwin, Porter, Irving Berlin, and that sort of thing from the 1930s and 40s and so forth. And 1950 came along and kind of went away. And we're going to find out about that with acclaimed cultural critic Ben Ugoda, who uh, has written for Slate, the New York Times, Esquire, and the American Scholar. He's a journalism professor at the University of Delaware and wrote this great book called The B-Side. And Ben, uh, first of all, Maybe uh, you can give more of an explanation of the Great American Songbook because that's so popular. You even nowadays have people like uh, Rod Stewart and Paul McCartney trying to sing some of these things. It's music that has, is still popular today. No question about it, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the term Great American Songbook dated from, I believe uh, it was an album that Carmen McRae put out in the 70s, and it, it just stuck because it seems so right. And uh, the, 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 the nature, or the particular nature of the songs in that songbook varies a little bit according to who's doing the counting. I mean, it's not an official tally. But basically, people understand that there's some several hundred songs that were written, as you say, the bulk of them in that period between the uh, the mid-1920s and the late 40s into the early 50s that uh, have stood the test of time. I mean, they, they're, they're just a great body of work. And as you say, uh, uh, people like Rod Stewart... Uh, Aging rockers tend to try to revive their careers by doing albums of them. And this has been going on for a long time as well. Back in the 80s, Willie Nelson did one. Linda Ronstadt did a series. Carly Simon did one. And now even uh, even this this particular winter, next week, Bob Dylan is coming out with his new CD that's all going to be relatively obscure songs from the period that had all been done previously by Frank Sinatra. You would might consider it to be like the bizarro world, Bob Dylan, but <laughs> at this late date, they're having a bit of a meeting of the minds. Yeah, I, I saw that. Have you had any chance to listen to any of that? I, I have, in fact. Uh, Dylan has released two of the songs um, on the CD. One, one's a song called Stay With Me that was the theme from a 
1963 movie called The Cardinal, and a very obscure song. And, and Dylan does a very, uh, you can listen to it on his website, bobdylan.com, a very affecting, spare, ra- rather moving version of it. And the other is uh, an even more obscure song from the 40s called Full Moon and Empty Arms that he put out some months back. And that, again, uh, he, he puts it over kind of well. It'll be interesting to see what the reaction is to this CD when it comes out next week. Well, I'm glad to hear that because he put a Christmas album out uh, a year or two ago that was almost sounded like a joke, you know, and you're thinking, oh, man, this poor guy has lost it. He's so great. So I'm really kind of excited about that. That's And this music is so great, too. What is it? I mean, you know, we've lost the Gershwins and that sort of thing. And at the same time, though, I guess rock has had its people like McCartney and Lennon and so forth that have written some great stuff. But what is it about that type of music that has really stood the test of time in your mind? Well, um, you know, the, the, the proof of the pudding is the tasting. So, you know, we can see that it still, it still appeals. What, what are the qualities uh, of it? I, I guess um, one word I'd use is sophistication. It's, it's musically and also lyrically sophisticated. Uh, great lyricists like Lorenz Hart and Ira Gershwin and Yip Harburg. Um, the, the key thing to me is, I guess two things. One, just a kind of coincidence of genius that, that all these songwriters, uh, were born within about a 15 year period of each other, amazingly enough. And they came around at the same time and they inspired each other. Almost like, you know, I'm a tennis fan and seeing the period when there's uh, Federer and Nadal and Djokovic is kind of the same thing. They're so great and each of them spurs the rivals to, to greatness. So there was that. The other thing that comes to mind is is the importance of jazz. Um, you know, uh, in the period when these men, and they're all men, uh, for the mo- almost all men, were writing in, in, in the 20s, that was when jazz was coming to the fore. So all the great uh, rhythms and harmonies of jazz music, these guys totally absorbed and listened to and reflected that in their songs. And then beyond that, once they wrote the songs, great jazz musicians like uh, Billie Holiday, Benny Goodman, Lester Young, uh, did great improvisations with the songs. They really could stand up to it. They, 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 they had the uh, emotional resonance, yet complexity and sophistication that they could hold up and still do hold up to multiple interpretations. More with Ben Yagoda, author of The B-Side, The Death of Tin Pan Alley, and The Rebirth of the Great American Song. Time now for wine, dessert wines to be specific, and who better to make suggestions than America's first master sommelier, Eddie Osterland. What do you think about sherry's? Well, sherry's that's a that's a, a category of wine that the Americans really don't know very much about and it's vast. They have dry fino sherry's as a Paris East, which are wonderful, right down to olorosos and and real sweet ones. Uh, on the other hand, you have things like port, uh, vintage port in a tawny port, uh, 10, 12, 15 year port, tawny ports. I love Madeiras, which are kind, they're, they're similar to ports, they're fortified wines, they're 18, 19% alcohol, but there's a whole cast of characters of uh, tastes that most people have never in their wildest imagination experienced, and I always want to present them at least one of those things, so when they walk away, they know what it's about, how it tastes, they could buy it themselves, and they can, you know, they can look cool too. Okay, now, so let's let's talk about sherries and ports. I know they can get real expensive. I mean, some of the really good ones can cost a fortune. What about for somebody that 
yeah, I would like to try it. You want to go find something in their local grocers or that type of thing. Anything you can recommend? Well, yeah. I mean, you, there there are, you know, ruby ports, which, you know, they don't cost more than $15 a bottle. And they're lovely and they're sweet and they're delicious and they're be. You might want to serve them at the end of a meal with uh, some Stilton cheese because they're salty and and fatty and you know the thing when you're thing that I want to teach people on the show is that food and wine, when properly paired, each amplify each should amplify each other's assets because ultimately I want to pe- get people to realize that rather than drinking wine as something to wash your food down with. It could be also looked at as a condiment, which can make your food taste better. But you know what? In order to do that, you've got to taste the food and wine in your mouth at the same time. And quite frankly, 95% of people don't. They use wine as a beverage. I mean, you would need a French fry. And then, then if I offered you a little ramekin of ketchup afterwards, you already ate the French fry. It needs to be dipped in a ketchup. Why? Because the ketchup and the French fry taste better together. Well, the wine is a stunt double for the ketchup. The wine is the same thing as, as mustard is to a hot dog. And nobody realizes that, or almost no one. So each week, we're going to be giving you food and wine uh, pairings that you can show off to your friends and they'll run off to the store and get a you know get a thing of goat cheese and they'll have it with Sauvignon Blanc a fancier Sauvignon Blanc from France is called Sancerre and all of a sudden they'll be going Jesus these things are magnetic in the mouth when I taste them together thanks Eddie back with Ben Yagoda author of The B-Side The Death of Tin Pan Alley and The Rebirth of the Great American Song in just a few moments you're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi Hey, I'm Michael Shapiro from Reckless in Vegas, and you're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Medicare rules are confusing. They should be. There are over 130,000 pages of regulations. There's Part A through D, Medicare Advantage, and Medigap. According to the CMS, there are government programs available that can help you pay for your medical expenses. Choosing the right Medicare plan is a really big deal. The wrong choice can cost you a lot of money, and the right choice can put more money in your pocket. Call one of our licensed representatives today. At 65 Plus Medicare, our free service can show you a plan that will maximize your Medicare benefits, ensure you are taking advantage of all available government assistance programs, and save you money. Plus, call right now and get a free report on how to avoid costly Medicare mistakes. Call now. 800-253-8126-800-253-8126 That's 800-253-8126 Holy gentle giants, dog food, Batman. I'm Burt Ward, Robin from the Batman TV series. I was the caped crusader, and now I'm the canine crusader. After rescuing and feeding 15,500 dogs for 23 years, my wife and I created a natural, low-fat, heart-healthy, made-in-America dog food and special feeding and care program designed to help all dogs live amazingly longer, healthier, happier lives. Our dogs are living as long as 27 healthy, active years. Yours can too. That's twice their normal lifespan and triple for some breeds. Would you like your dog to live as long as 27 years and still be active and healthy? Gentle Giants Dog Food is complete nutrition for all dogs and puppies, all ages and sizes, and is different from other dog foods without the greasy coating and high fat content that can shorten your dog's life. Try our Gentle Giants life-enhancing dog food for the longer, healthier, happier life of your dog. 
Welcome back to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Let's get back to our conversation with the author of The B-Side, The Death of Tim Pan Alley, and The Rebirth of the Great American Song, Ben Yagoda. Yeah, and then rock and roll comes, and it's kind of changed our... Uh, the way we listen to music because now you, there's this thing called classic rock which was the stuff that I grew up with which is rock and you know it's funny because I see some of that classic rock some of the stuff from Lennon and McCartney and uh, just some of the great stuff even some even going back to the 50s with the Chuck Berry and so forth that's almost become kind of uh, American Songbook Part 2 I, I well definitely and you know it, it's the reason why I wanted to make sure the subtitle of the book the B-side is the death of Tin Pan Alley, but the rebirth of the great American song. You know, I don't want to be one of those get off my lawn people who says everything was great then, then it ended, and everything since then stinks. And I, and I certainly don't want to say that, nor do I believe it. Uh, it's different. It's different. And, you know, you mentioned the Beatles. They're, they're such, they're geniuses on the level of these earlier people, the Gershwins. Very different, but equally influential. I mean, the Beatles came along. They, they listened to all this stuff. They listened to American pop music, Tin Pan Alley stuff, and in fact covered some of it in their own, like yeah. the, the Meredith Wilson song from um, from Music Man. There were bells on the hill, but I never heard them ringing till there was you. They had in one of their first albums. So, uh, but but beyond that, they gave other younger writers a, a sort of sense of how one could write a great song in, in this era and com- complex, uh, sophisticated, not simplistic. Um, so it's the songs themselves, but equally important, the example they gave. And, and the, and the final key thing is that they set the idea that the writer would perform his or her own song. Uh, you know, in the yeah. earlier model, uh, the writer would be in one cubicle and the performer in another. But with the Beatles and subsequent rockers and singer-songwriters of Paul Simon and Joni Mitchell, uh, they were performing their own material. And the folks I've mentioned have done great things with that idea as well. Yeah, there's not too many people out there anymore like that that just write songs. I mean, I'm thinking about maybe Bernie, uh, I can't think of his last name, that works with Elton John. They used to Bernie write this. Toppin, yeah. yeah, Bernie Toppin. But there's not really a lot of those, are there? No, and you know, the, the one place where you see that is Nashville. That's the place uh, in the country song writing and country music industry that has the biggest similarity with the classic Tin Pan Alley with that division of labor. You still see that there, but in, in terms of mainstream pop music, um, well, and then I guess the other exception would be the, the, the sort of newer pop sounds like a, you know, a, a Britney Spears or a Katy Perry, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they don't write their own material yeah. either. But in, in the rock genre, ever since the Beatles, is, there's been the expectation that you write your own song. Well, final question, Ben. A- as you look at this stuff, we, we have some great stuff coming up now, but do you think the reason we don't have a, the, the quote-unquote American songbook anymore like we remember it is because the music is so diversified. I mean, you talked about country, you know, I mean, you just go down, up and down your radio dial, you'll hear country, you can hear the, you know, kind of new wave music, uh, hard yeah. rock, cold, you know, old rock, and so forth. Yeah, hip-hop, country, folk, uh, uh, neo-folk, neo-country, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, there's good and there's bad. In that period of the 30s and 40s, everything was unified, and that led to great things. But then a lot of things, a lot of voices weren't heard. I mean, you didn't hear African-American uh, performers uh, 
doing their own stuff on the radio uh, the, the way you do now. And country and country and western was pretty much shut out of the national scene. So yeah, with 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 the loss of that unity comes the 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 refreshingness of lots of different kinds of sounds. Lots of different voices are heard. Uh, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. No, the book, people are going to love it, whether you're from that era and you just love that music or whether you want to hear about what's happening. I mean, there's some great interviews in there with Linda Ronstadt, Randy Newman, Herb Alpert. Just a great look at all this. I love the book, uh, Ben. One last thing. Is this why we find even kids today? I know my daughter goes to college and it's amazing how many people play some Sinatra music. It's on their iPods. I mean, Tony Bennett is big in there. I, I think that's absolutely right. You know, uh, it's it's not going to go away, and it's thanks in large part to people like um, Tony Bennett and Frank Sinatra you just mentioned, who kept it alive. And Bennett is still out there with Lady Gaga, still performing this music. And uh, I, I hate to make predictions of any kind, but I will say that yeah, I agree, this will never die. Well, the book is the B side. Thanks so much for being with us, Ben. Really enjoyed it. Okay, good. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. As Vegas slowly opens up. Let's check in with your Vegas insider, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com. It's going to be a little while till Vegas is really back to where it was. So in that period of time, obviously, it's going to be really competitive to get people in. But there's a lot of things, like you mentioned before, you can't have the big entertainment for a while. And there's certain things. And it really gets down to gambling, drinking, and eating. Okay, let's take out the restaurants for a minute. Do you think now that this is an opportunity for somebody to... Draw more people to their facility by making the odds, like I think of blackjack or some of the roulette games, uh, a little bit more friendly in one place than another. It's going to draw more people because it's a limited uh, audience? Yeah, I, th- I think it's a mixed bag. Uh, it was really great to see that the big companies were going to offer free parking. I think that was an enticement that needed to happen to make it easier for people driving in to, to park their cars. Uh, I predicted they would wave, start waiving resort fees. A couple of casinos have done that. They do it. It's a promotional thing. They're not getting rid of them altogether. So those kind of enticements, I think, are there. The the idea of the table minimums changing is tricky because I actually predicted they would go down because you want to lure people in. But there's an economic element of this where because there are limitations of people at each table. It's not economically viable to run a table with three people at a $5 minimum. So people were correct in disagreeing with me because uh, a place like El Cortez has said they're going to move their, they're going to bump up their minimum from $5 to $10. Doesn't seem like a lot, but this is a downtown gambler friendly place that has said they're going to raise their minimum. So I'm afraid of what might happen on the strip. Uh, I think. Overall, you're going to see just a mixture. You're going to see a, a very, um, I think everybody's going to be very safety-oriented. They're really going to focus on customer service to lure people back. Uh, you are going to see amazing room rates. Some of these room rates are the lowest I've ever seen, and I've been here for 15, 20 years. Uh, so I think room rates are going to bring people back, too. I don't think it's going to trickle down to the tables uh, with more advantageous odds. I think you're going to still still see a lot of crappy um, six-to-five blackjack tables. You're still going to see a lot of crappy roulette tables with triple zero. But you know what? At this point, just getting bodies in there and people having fun is a lot more important than making a ton of money. So I'm hoping they'll 
they will price things accordingly. And let's see some deals at the restaurants. Let's see some deals, you know, at the other amenities in these places. And let's just get people coming back to Vegas. Thanks, Scott. Visit VitalVegas.com every day and follow Scott on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Remember, all of our shows are archived on our website, VegasNeverSleeps.com. You can also listen on SoundCloud, iTunes, and more. Coming up, Vegas Never Sleeps presents the Sports Rockin' Tours. Today's topic is one of the greatest moments in Vegas sports history. UNLV wins the College Basketball National Championship under coach Jerry Tarkanian. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Vegas, here we go! They were there when history was made. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Inside the 20. Touchdown! A Rackham Tour is a storyteller. Welcome to the Sports Rackham Tours. And with two out, you talk about a roll of the dice. This is it. Lewis gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! The Sports Tours dusts off the great American art of storytelling from the players, coaches, media, the people who were there. Smith corks one in the right down the line. It may go. Go crazy, folks. Go crazy. It's a home run. Go crazy. Now, here's Stephen Maggi. Welcome to the Sports Rockin' Tours, a show that presents the observations, recollections, and memories of a select group of storytellers who represent the past half century or so of American sports. People who were actually involved with or bore witness to those events that shaped our childhood, kept us engaged, and keep us coming back for more. Today, you'll hear how a controversial coach took a sometimes underappreciated team on a magical ride to the top of the college basketball world. Perhaps the most exciting team in the history of college basketball might be the UNLV Running Rebels back in 1990. There was an incredible team with an incredible coach. We're going to have somebody who saw it, was there. He was covering it at that time for the Las Vegas Sun. He also covered the Rebels later on for the Review Journal. Our good friend Steve Karp. Well, Steve, just how good was that team in 1990? Are they really one of the best of all time? I don't know about the best of all time because they, they suffered a few losses along the way, but they they turned out to be very, very good when it mattered most during the NCAA tournament, particularly beating a very feisty Ball State team and a very emotionally charged Loyola Marymount team. Plus, if you remember, they also were down to Georgia Tech in the national semifinals. Everybody talks about the 30-point Beatdown they gave Duke in the championship game in Denver, but a lot of people don't remember they were losing to Georgia Tech at halftime. That team that had Dennis Scott leading it, and UNLV had the rally to beat the Yellow Jackets to get to the championship game on Monday at McNichols Arena. Yeah, people forget about that, but I remember that Loyola Marymount. They were pretty charged up for that game, as I recall. It was really, you know, the, the two styles were very similar. They they'd actually played each other in Vegas 
in the preseason NIT back in November, and UNLV had beaten uh, Loyola Marymount that night. And they, <laughs> it's funny because things got a little heated toward the end of the game and into the tunnel after the game. There's some pushing and shoving and a lot of uh, woofing between the two teams. Hank Gathers was still very much alive back then. And uh, Larry Johnson was just starting out his UNLV uh, tenure. And so it was very interesting. It got very heated in that tunnel. So there was still there was still some animosity left over from uh, the November game when they met in late March in Oakland. But uh, by then, obviously, Loyola Marymount's program had taken a very different uh, tenor to it with the death of Gathers. And their mission was much different. It wasn't about avenging a loss to UNLV in November. It was to honor the man's memory and try and win a title for Hank Gathers. Well, before we talk about that title game, let's talk about the UNLV team itself. They were loaded, right? I mean, Larry Johnson was the big star, but uh, it was a strong team uh, all the way around. It was a team that kind of came together in a very unique way. Uh, They were very diverse. Greg Anthony who was from days played at Rancho High School, would be the starting point guard on this team. He went to the University of Portland as a shooting guard and then transferred back to UNLV to come home after a year. And they worked him and made him a point guard. And Greg was a scorer in high school at Rancho. He was a scorer uh, in his first year at Portland. And so he had the learn to change his entire game, which he did, by the way, his sophomore year, when they uh, when they got beat in uh, Seattle on the, on their way to trying to get to the 1989 Final Four, when they lost to Seton Hall, but it was a very unique group of guys. They they had uh, an interesting mix. Uh, you had a really tough inside defender in David Butler as your center. You had a exuberant type of and Anderson Hunt. You had a, an athletic wing in Stacy Ogman. You had Larry Johnson, a Juco All-American from Texas, who was going to try to find his way and eventually would become the team's leader. Uh, you had guys like Stacy Sianovich, Travis Bice, Moses Scurry, Chris Jeter coming off the bench. It was a deep team that had a very good work ethic to it. And, and obviously... The one element that combines it all, the, the thread that runs through it all, is Tarkanian. Uh, these guys loved playing for him. They respected him. They worked very hard every day. Their practices were harder than their games. They would practice for three hours every day in a small, windowless gym on the UNLV campus. Uh, there was no fancy thing like they have now at UNLV with their Mendenhall Center. This was a very Spartan place to play and practice every day let's talk a little about tark because tark the shark was quite the guy i remember growing up with him down at long beach state he was always thought of as kind of a guy that he, he had this image of trying to bend the rules and of course he had this whole battle with the nc2a but people love playing for him right not only at long beach state but uh, of course at unlv and even later in fresno well again he had a great way of communicating with his players, especially African-American players. You know what we're going through as a country right now? 
in the aftermath of the, the George Floyd murder uh, in Minneapolis. Tarkadian was a, a white Armenian, a short guy. You know, he wasn't big in stature, but he respected everybody. And if you were African-American, you trusted him with your life and with your career. And, you know, this goes back to his JUCO days, coaching at Riverside and in Pasadena City College in California. So, yeah, by the time he got to Long Beach and he's, He's coaching guys like Ed Ratliff and, and uh, Jockey Trapp and, and, and some of these other guys. Um, he had already had a reputation for being a good coach who really could motivate and, and game plan well and get his guys to execute. And so at UNLV, by the time you know he'd been there for so many years, he had a group of guys that were definitely motivated come 1990 to make a run at this thing. Well, you know, you mentioned that about his good reputation with the African-American players. Wasn't it when he was at Long Beach State that he had like three starters, and that was unheard of at the time, three starters that were African-American? Not so much in California, but in other parts of the country, you know, there was still a little resistance to play a black player. But, you know, most of the country uh, by then, by the early you know, 70s was integrated uh, when it came to college basketball. Certainly, you know, UCLA, which was the program in the nation at the time under John Wooden, had more than its share of, of remarkable African-American players. And it starts with Lou Alcindor, a.k.a. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And so it wasn't that unusual uh, by then. And, and of course, uh, when Tark got to UNLV and they made their first Final Four run in 1977 with that Hardway Eight group, which included Reggie Theus, Robert Smith, Sam Smith, and Larry Anderson and Louis Moffitt. Uh, I'm naming five African American players off the top of my head. They were pretty darn good. And, and Tark was a great recruiter. And, you know, look, the NCA had its issues with him. Obviously, and the fact that they were able to succeed as much as they did is a credit to his ability to keep the distractions from overwhelming the program, and that was hard to do. We will be back with sports writer Steve Karp, who covered the running Rebels for the Las Vegas Sun in 1990 as UNLV won the NC2A title in just a moment. You're listening to Sports Rockin' Tours with Stephen Maggi. Okay, Sean, we need to talk about our training budget. We're spending almost $1,500 per employee each year. What's the plan? Well, ma'am, 42% of companies are saying that e-learning has led to an increase in revenue. What does that do about the travel expense? E-learning allows employees to learn wherever they are. Then we need to consider the time away from production. I heard that e-learning takes up to 60% less employee time than traditional classroom training. Perfect. Let's find a curriculum company, a development company, a learning management software company. Actually, Epsilon XR specializes in end-to-end learning solutions with tools such as instructor-led training, online classrooms, simulations, virtual and augmented reality, and curriculum development. Get Epsilon XR on the phone. 
Epsilon XR creates immersive learning environments that engage with your learner, resulting in improved information retention, which leads to better performance and ultimately an increase in revenue. Learn more at elearning.epsilonxr.com. Welcome back to Sports Rockin' Tours. You are listening to sports writer Steve Karp, who was with the Las Vegas Sun as the beat reporter with the Rebels in 1990. Today, Steve writes at Gaming Today and at Sinbin Vegas. Well, wasn't he annoyed by the NCAA in the sense that, you know, you mentioned uh, John Wooden. Well, there was some thought that, you know, St. John could do whatever he wanted at UCLA. <laughs> he had the really going after Tarkanian. Well, yeah, and that's kind of where it all started with, with Tark because, uh, he used to write a column in the Long Beach Press Telegram, and he kind of hinted at that, that, you know, how come the NCAA is not looking into Sam Gilbert, who was a booster of UCLA and uh, was taking care of John Wooden's guys? And uh, when and when that got out, you know, the NCA uh, kind of turned its sights on Tark, and their battle was underway, and it, it lasted right up to the end of his day's coaching at, at Fresno State. You know, he was one of the few guys who had to beat the NCAA in court, even though uh, he originally had lost uh, in the Supreme Court. Eventually, he would would win a settlement from the NCAA for the uh, way they treated him. And, and look, it, it kept him out of the Hall of Fame for a long time. He should have been in long ago, but he did get in. He did live to see it, unlike Eddie Sutton, who passed away recently. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for Tark, he was a simple guy, but he was a complicated guy. He... He basically was all about winning, and he just wanted to be able to coach his team. He didn't like outside distractions. He was a big fan, though, of, of the people who covered him. If you were a newspaper guy like I was, and, and he got to know you and, and, and develop a relationship with him, that was very special. It's one of the things I'm most proud of in my career, that I was able to establish that kind of rapport. I actually helped write his column in the Las Vegas Sun, toward the end of his time at UNLV. So uh, a lot of people don't know that. But um, he was a very, very good coach. He knew how to motivate. He knew how to adjust. He was a good tactician. I mean, he had good basketball people around him because he always didn't think he knew everything. A lot of coaches' egos would prevent them from deferring to their assistant coaches. Not Tark. Tark would listen. You know, and, and I think that was a big part of his success over his career. You know, the other thing, some people think that uh, all he was about was just uh, like a basketball factory. But I found interesting, you look back at the 1990 championship team, for example, 80% of the team finished with a degree. That's actually mm-hmm. pretty good. <laughs> yeah, no, look, you know, guys like Greg Anthony and Stacey Ogman, Larry, they, they all got their degrees. You know, Hunt didn't, but um, he actually did go back to school at some point. But yeah, I mean, yeah, again, sometimes the message got lost in, in the... Uh, and all the stuff that was going on with the NCAA, and, and it got underreported that these guys did go to class for the most part. They did graduate. And, uh, again, while their GPA may have not been the highest on campus, uh, it was still decent, and, and uh, they took legit classes. That's, that's really good to hear. You know, it, it was interesting. When they were playing Duke back then, too, there was this – now everybody seems to dislike Duke because uh, they've won so much. But at the time, Duke was kind of the Cinderella team. I mean, even though they, they'd been close, just kind of like Tarkanian, Coach K back there was kind of doing the same thing where he hadn't won the big one, so somebody was going to win it. 
But I think what's interesting is when they were trying to make comments like that in the beginning, before the game, Tarkanian uh, shot back. He goes, it really upsets me. And this is an exact quote. He goes, because I've met some of the Duke kids. I don't think they're bad kids at all. And I thought, wow, that's what a great way to stick up for your guys and really to, to kind of ma- make a mockery out of what some of these perceptions were. Yeah, well, uh, like I said, Jerry had a uh, a sharp wit. And, and he and Mike, by the way, were very good friends over the years. And um, Coach Shea had tremendous respect for Tark and, and his ability to coach and motivate and lead. Uh, as you know, Mike himself, uh, a captain in the U.S. Army, a graduate of West Point, leadership is everything to him. And, and actually what he did with our Olympic team at USA Basketball, uh, the last few Olympiads, speaks for itself. So those two guys actually had a very good relationship. And when Duke came back in 91 and avenged the loss in 90, when they beat him in Indy in the semis, you know, Tark didn't make any excuses. He, uh, he was disappointed, obviously, that uh, their quest to run the table and win in defend the national championship was denied. But at the same time, he also acknowledged Mike and Duke for having done a good job that day in Indy. And the year before, of course, it was a pretty, uh, pretty big beatdown. Uh, One hundred three to seventy three. You were there. I mean, yeah. it was pretty much from start to finish. They kind of dominated. Was that just everything? Like you mentioned, they, they kind of were a great team. Was that just everything coming together? There were circumstances, obviously, that night, Steve, as that contributed to it. Probably the biggest factor was that for Duke, Bobby Hurley was battling the stomach flu. He was not 100%. He could barely bring the ball up the court. He just wasn't himself. And, and when UNLV hit him with, I think it was, what, an 18 or something, 18 to 1 or 18 to 3 run to start the second half, it really did put the game out of reach. And, and there was no way Duke was coming back at that point. They, they were just mentally focused. They were certainly motivated. And of course, they felt like it was them against the world because the way everybody was portraying it, it was like, and you alluded to this, Duke being the good guys and UNLV being the, the evil cheaters from Vegas and, and what have you. And, of course, that, that wasn't the case. But the players certainly used it as, as motivation, and uh, they, they performed. I mean, Anderson Hunt couldn't miss that night. He had 29 points, and Greg Anthony dominated Hurley. Uh, they had no response for Augman or, or Larry Johnson and, and David Butler and Scurry and Stacey Sianovich and, and uh, Travis Spice, they all contributed and it was a uh, it was a very resounding performance and, and again, we haven't seen one like that since really in, in the title game. And finally, when you think about this team, it's not a professional team, of course, but that was really the first shot of Vegas in regards to team sports where it just took over the town, right? And really, the, the town loved them. Yeah, I mean, there was no Golden Knights. There were no Raiders. There was no Aces. There was no anything like that. It was you know, occasionally a big fight, a big boxing match at Caesars Palace or the uh, convention center at the what was in the Las Vegas Hilton, and it was UNLV, and it was it was pretty simple. The, the city only had about three hundred three hundred fifty thousand residents at the time, so it was kind of like a, a small town. The college was everything. UNLV's sports teams were basically what kept everyone's interest aroused. Yeah, it was a, a special moment. The parade down Fremont Street and down the Strip, and the 
the big uh, celebration back at the Thomas and Mack Center when they arrived back from Denver. It was a rallying point for the city. And then, of course, in the months and years ahead, it would divide the city because the president, Robert Maxson, who's not a fan of Jerry's, did everything he could to remove Jerry from uh, his job. And it, it caused a, an unbelievable divide in the city and that took years to heal. Honestly, UNLV has not been right since. Uh, they, they've only made a couple of runs in the NCAA tournament. I think Lon Kruger's team made it to the Sweet 16. I want to say it was 2008, I think, and, and lost to Wisconsin. Um, but Oregon, I forgot which it was. I wasn't covering the team anymore by then. But what they did in that stretch uh, when Tark was coach, it's going to be very tough for anybody to replicate going forward at UNLV. Steve Karp, Hall of Fame sports writer in Nevada. Steve, uh, you got a couple of great places you can be read at. One is Gaming Today, and uh, the other, I believe, is uh, Sin- you're still doing the Simbin Vegas. At Gaming Today, uh, I write every week, and, and we're still up and running. And uh, we invite people to go to our website, GamingToday.com. And if you uh, are a hockey fan, uh, we're still selling our book, Vegas Born. The Remarkable Story of the Golden Knights. Go to our website, VegasBornBook.com. You can order your copy. Thanks, Steve. Make sure to follow Steve Carp. You know, nobody covers hockey better, and you can follow the Golden Knights on Sinbin Vegas and in gaming today. Go to the Vegas Never Sleeps website and check out the Sports Rockin' Tour page. You can hear bonus content from this conversation soon, plus a number of other great sports stories. Don't forget to follow us on all social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for listening today. This is Stephen Maggi. What if every dollar you invested into your training program turned into $30 of revenue? What if your learning program was so engaging that your employees looked forward to annual trainings? And what if you could monitor the success and effectiveness of your curriculum with quantifiable metrics? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. E-learning has made each of these scenarios possible, utilizing tools such as virtual and augmented reality, simulations, and online instructor-led training provides a safe environment for employees to learn at their own pace. Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Here at Epsilon XR, we have 50 years of experience in creating powerful and effective training programs. We combine proven training methods with cutting-edge technology to create immersive training experiences. Are you ready to take your training program to the next level? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Training.epsilonxr.com.